0: You're listening to another great message from Northside Community Church. We're going to talk about resilience. We've just seen a living example in our brother and sister. Uh, We've also seen uh, the concept of resilience come up in the band Chumbawamba. Chumblewumba hit the charts in 1997 with their song Tub Thumping, where they said, I get knocked down, but I get up again. You're never going to keep me down. I think if ever there's a motto that these two live by, it's, it's Chumblewumba's motto. And what they're describing is resilience. Resilience is the ability to bounce back, the ability to adapt to and to change to life's adversities, to spring back. Uh, to the shape that you originally had when you've been uh, under stress uh, often we mistake resilience for endurance and they're two totally different things like for example cement endures whereas silicon is resilient I, I would i would ratch- much rather give my little kids a silicon toy a resilient toy than an enduring toy than a cement toy uh, silicon always springs back no matter how much the stress to the to the shape that it originally held. Now the thing is, I think we miss resilience when we look through many of the stories of the Bible. The way that I understood this was in my theological library that I have digitally, I'm able to search thousands of books that I have online in the stroke of a pen. And when I, I looked up endurance, here's what the return gave me, two hundred twenty-eight thousand seven hundred forty-one different instances of the word across 3,217 resources. Resilience, on the other hand, 83 across 53 resources. So what I've come to think is, in the Christian life in particular, we seem to focus so much on endurance and we miss resilience. This springiness, the ability to bounce back from less than flat. And only recently, society is starting to see the same thing. If you look through and do the research, uh, you'll see guys like Seligman from Harvard. It's only really been in the 70s that uh, society and psychology has picked up on the notion of resilience. And Rosemary Cantor, in her Harvard Business Review article, sums it up well. She says this, surprises are the new norm and resilience, the new skill. The difference between winners and losers is not who wins wins. Or loses everyone loses at some point it's how a person bounces back from that loss that makes them the winner and so haven't you seen that you know what's the difference between a person that's they come against the stresses and the trials and the hardships of life and one one is knocked down and crushed and the other gets back up again you're never gonna keep them down the difference is this word resilience the ability to bounce back from less than flat so the need for resilience, we need this. We're starting society, Christians and society. Harvard is seeing that we need to rediscover resilience. And look, the need for resilience, the approach to the need to resilience is reflected really differently across the generations. And let me stereotype here. I hope I don't offend anyone, but let me stereotype here. Our very own uh, Michael McQueen, in one of his TED Talks, said this, that he said that 68% of TAFE students in New South Wales failed to complete each of the subjects that they enrol in. And when he went down and analysed why this was, he said it was uh, for one of two reasons. When they came up against hardships or stress in their study, either one of two things happened. Either they said this, uh, that in the first place it was the wrong goal, they feel something hard, it was obviously the wrong course, or there's something wrong with me. And so the Gen Y approach to resilience is, life's not meant to be hard. (laughs) Who ever said life was hard? So if if life was hard, then I must have had, if this is hard, then I must have the wrong goal. or There's something wrong with me because life's not meant to be hard. Now, the other end of the spectrum, and again, just broad stereotypes, bear with me, but it's the boomers and above, the baby boomers and above. They come more from the, the endurance side of the spectrum. You know, the, the boomers grew up through the Vietnam War. They had parents that were builders. You know, if you were a boomer and you stubbed your knee and you said to your father, oh, Dad, I've stubbed my knee, your father would say, Well, son, I was over Kokoda three times. You know, I stubbed my knee when I was fighting the Japanese. That's <sighs> grin and merit. It's, an, it's, the, it's the endurance grit approach to dealing with life, right? oh well, life's tough um, so so here's the challenge on one hand we've got a generation that the minute you come against trials and hardships you run uh, on the other hand you've got a generation that sort of grits and bears it now the problem with that generation there is that the endurance side you can become hardened and brittle c.s lewis said love anything and your heart will certainly be wrung and possibly be broken If you want to make sure of keeping intact, give your heart to no one, not even to an animal. Wrap it carefully around with hobbies and little luxuries. Avoid all entanglements. Lock it up safe in the casket or coffin of your own selfishness. But in that casket, safe, dark, motionless, airless, it will change. It will not be broken. It will become unbreakable, impenetrable, irredeemable. The alternative to tragedy, or at least the risk to tragedy, is damnation. So here's the question. When it comes to experiencing trials and hardship, how do we find a dynamic where on one hand we don't run, but on the other hand we don't grow bitter and brittle? I think, I think that resource is resilience. Resilience. And as I was reading through this and studying this, I'm thinking, look, yeah, endurance is one thing, but I need resilience. I want to be the sort of person that's able to bounce back when the stresses of life come in, wouldn't you? Would you like that resource? Would you like to understand what that is? How do we do it? The next three weeks, we're going to look at how that happens. The first thing that we're going to learn this week is just to understand the need for resilience. You need a reason for resilience. And so here's where we'll go this morning. Back to a two point message. I'm really going on to this theme. I'm loving it. Two point message, spring sale. Uh, Here's how we'll frame it up this morning. Do you want the good news or the bad news? Good news or bad news? Uh, I've already written the sermon, so I'm going to choose which direction we're going. (laughs) I'm the sort of guy who likes the bad news first. So we'll deliver the bad news first. Here's the bad news the bad news is this hardship and trials are indiscriminately inevitable. Verse 2, consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, when you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. Consider it pure joy when you face trials of different kinds. Notice how James doesn't say here, consider it pure joy if you face trials. He says, when. What he's saying is that trials and hardship happen to everyone and anyone whether you're a christian or not trials and hardship are indiscriminately inevitable if and when to everyone now i remember reading a book that said it said this we've we've never had a time in history where we're more unhappy about being unhappy there's never been a time there's never been a place there's never been a season in history where there's been more of a crybaby culture, it says. It says every other culture, every other time, every other season, understood that life's not fair. Now, would that be unfair to say of our culture? Uh, Why are we like that? Look, there's probably a lot of reasons why we're like that, but, but here's what I think is the primary one. The primary one is that we are a secular culture. Uh, The word secular comes from the Latin word "seculum," which was a funny term to represent 90 years or a lifetime. And so what it means is that a secular culture is the society of this lifetime only. That's what it means to live in a secular society. And here's what a secular society teaches. A secular society teaches this. If 90 years is all that is it, then you better get your happiness now. You better do all you can to shove happiness into into your life. This is it. Nine years. That's all you get. And if there's nothing else, nothing beyond, nothing that else is happening other than this life, if when we die we turn to worms, then you you better get your happiness while you can. Now, here's here's the problem with that. This makes you very vulnerable to life. Because if trials and suffering are inevitable, then it's coming it's coming and if and if this life is all there is then then when your happiness dissolves because of the trials and stress, stresses of life then you dissolve uh, when your happiness is blown away you're blown away and thus there's no resilience you can't bounce back from that now whether a non-christian or not we have to realize this that if that is the logic of our saculum, our secular culture, if that's the logic, the first thing we have to recognize this morning is we're all swimming in that same river, whether you're a Christian or a non-Christian. And so what it means for us is beginning to build resilience means that you've got to come to grips with our secular culture. You've got to come out from underneath that. Are you unhappy about being unhappy? Are you surprised by trials? Then if, if so, you have no reason for resilience, and in many ways, you're just going to want, want to run, whether you're Gen Y or not. So stress and trials are indiscriminately inevitable. Particularly if you're less than 30 this morning here, um, surprise. <laughs> Ask any of our older folk <laughs> about what happens when you do a little bit of life. So if trials cause a big problem for everyone, then the real question is, how do we deal with the inevitable indiscriminate trials and hardship that we face in life how do we deal with it now this could be a whole nother sermon so i won't go down that rabbit hole but let me just touch on this for a second trials and suffering are often the biggest atheological argument that's technical preacher term for saying trials and suffering are often the biggest argument against the existence of god and it normally goes like this you maybe you've talked to people like this in your life that the people say "Uh, how can there be a god if there is so much suffering in the world how can there be a God after all of the hardship that I've been through? How can there be a God after all the pains that I've been through? How can there be a God if there's so much unfairness in my life? And so it can be the biggest argument for the non-existence of God. And so in some ways, the short answer is yes. Look, to believe in God in the face of hardship creates you a problem. But you've got an even bigger problem if you don't want to believe in God in the midst of your trials and your suffering. You see? You see? It's like I've shared a couple of months back about the well-known atheist Stephen Fry, who when interviewed said, look, suppose there is a God, what would you say to him? And Fry responds, how dare you? How dare you create a world in which little kids are having their eyes eaten out by insects? How dare you? And the short answer to that is, Stephen, why get so angry? If there is no God, we're just a random bunch of carbon that somehow by gravity's nature... Clump together. You see, the problem that you have if you don't believe in the God in face of hardship is that you've got no reason to get angry. You've got no reason to get upset. We're all just stardust, we're all just carbon, and we've got to get back to the garden, as it was once sung. Look, eh, disbelieving God in the face of trials is like this, is another way to put it. It's the cure, as it were, that is actually worse than the, the disease. <laughs> That is, it, it, uh, disbelieving God in, in the face of your hardships provides you with no better resources for dealing with it. So, coming back to it, how might Christianity, how might the resources available to you through the Word of God give you the resources to be resilient and to bounce back from less than flat? And that's where the good news comes in. So the bad news is, suffering is inevitable. It's a problem. It's a problem for everyone. Uh, we're learning that there's a resource available to us in the mystery that is Christianity. Uh, that's, the, that's the bad news. Now we go to the good news. You up for the good news? Okay. The good news is suffering and trials is indiscriminately inevitable. <laughs> that's the good news. I'm being cheeky. Uh, verse 4, perseverance must finish its work so that... You might become mature, complete, and not lacking anything. The good news is that even in trials and suffering, a dynamic can exist whereby it is possible that the trials and hardships that you face don't crush you, they transform you. And can you see how James is talking about this? Notice how he's not saying, he's not talking Gen he's not saying, consider it pure joy when you face troubles, because just get the heck out of there. Wrong course. <laughs> Nor is he saying to the boomers, "Consider it pure joy because this is going to help you be just like uh, mum and dad, and you can grin and bear it, and you're going to be a hard nut." Nor is he a masochist saying, "Consider it pure joy because its pain is bliss." <laughs> what does he say? He says in verse three. He says uh, verse two. Sorry, he says, "Consider it, consider it, consider it." What does he mean? "Consider it." Here's the good news resilience is not a trait or a talent rather resilience can be learned when he says consider it consider it means step back look up look out think ponder ponder this ponder that it may be possible that the hardship you're facing at the moment may uh, make you better not breakable think about it that this could transform you Let let me show you how this works 20 years ago they invented a thing called the biosphere In the Arizona desert, they built a biosphere in which they planted a whole range of organic materials in a sealed environment, and among them was trees. Trees were one things, and these trees they were finding when they planted these trees were growing far more rapidly, and they looked far more healthy than any of their cousins on the outside world. And yet what they discovered is when they applied any pressure to them, a really weird dynamic would happen. The branches would break off them very easily. And it had the scientists absolutely baffled. You could almost push them over this giant tree with a hand. It really had them baffling as they went they went through, they're trying to work out all these different genetic reasons. Was it something to do with the strain of tree? They couldn't understand it. And then it clicked for them, and they realized why they were so weak. And in the biosphere, there was an absence of wind. And in the absence of wind, then they began to explore and they understood that trees actually grow a different, a secondary type of wood inside them called stress wood. And stress wood only grows when the trees on the outside world are buffeted against all uh, the various torrential wind and the rain that pushes against them. And it's the, it's the stress wood is the thing that makes a tree flexible and spring back into shape when it's been against the winds. It's the thing that makes them resilient. And so these trees in the biosphere didn't have any stress wood. Hey question. Before I ask you, I ask you the question. I was thinking, you know what James would say to a tree in the biosphere? He'd say, "Consider it pure joy, my organic friends, when you face winds of all kinds of magnitude, for you know that the testing of your boughs is of your boughs is producing stress wood. So let the strains of the wind do its work in you so you don't fall over like your cousins in the biosphere." <laughs> right that's what he would say to the trees on the outside world consider a pure joy stressful hey um have you ever experienced a biosphere human what do they look like what what characterizes them you know someone who's grown up in the absence of wind and hardship in their life how would you characterize them i'll use some tough words shallow breakable Lacking resilience, you see it practically, and I've started to understand for this for the first time as a as a young twenty-something. Uh, I used to get so frustrated when I'd finished my university degree and and I thought I knew everything in the world. And you'd have bosses and people that you work with, and they'd say, "Oh, you're so young. Oh, you're so young." And I'm like, "No, no, I, don't. I know all sorts of different stuff." And I, fi- I finally understood what they really meant. What they really meant. What they really meant is you haven't suffered. You're a, you're a biosphere human. Like you look tall and you look strong and you've been through that, but you, you haven't suffered. Um, the good news is trials are like the wind producing stress wood in your life. That's the good news, that suffering is indiscriminately inevitable because it's producing a stress wood within you that allows you to bounce back from these fundamental stresses. So the question for you this morning and the good news is, have you got that sort of perspective on your life? Do you look at trials and hardships in that way? And that is part of the mystery of the resource that we will see over these coming weeks that's available to us as Christians. That the first step is that, that the James in the word of God here says, and he would know the persecution that was going on because the church was being hunted down and cut down and killed for the sake of their faith. He knows what wood development is all about. The question is, have you got the same perspective? The good news is, while suffering is inevitable, it's the very thing that can turn you into a better person, not a bitter person. So as we finish up this morning, what makes the Christian approach to resilience so different? What makes Christianity different? Uh, it's a bit like this. Have you ever experienced, when you've gone through trials and hardships, have you ever experienced the joy of being alongside someone who's been there before you a couple of years ahead? I've, I've seen the glory of this out in our urban garden as... As I've watched one of our older ladies sit next to another one of our ladies who's currently going through cancer, and just to hear the way that she was sharing when I went through this—you ever experienced that joy when you know someone personally and they've been through that before you? What does it do to you? Like, on one hand, it's not only inspiring, but it's transforming. You begin to see them and you go, if they could do this, maybe I could do this. And not only that, as they come into your life, there's words of encouragement and there's guidance in that, that it's so much more powerful than just simply reading a book. Now, what's, what's the difference in Christianity? And the difference in Christianity is this. Christians, when they go to start developing resilience, don't look for principles, they look to a person. They look to a person. Every other approach to resilience and and trials and hardship in life, every other approach is not powerful enough. The secular approach to trials says trials have the victory, Life is all there is, so just get some happiness to help deal with the sting of trials of life, because this life is all there is. Then you have things like the Buddhist approach says, well, trials will one day be replaced by the victory because the spirit is all there is. But in Christianity, it's so radically different. In Christianity, you see that God himself enters into the suffering. In other words, in simple terms, at least this God has the gumption to swallow his own medicine. And that is an incredible, an incredible mystery, particularly to the people like Stephen Fry. How dare you? Well, how dare you? How dare you come down and experience it yourself? We would say back to Fry about the God that we know. You see, when it says, it says "Consider it pure joy because it produces maturity. Who is Jesus Christ of the Christian? Jesus Christ is the one who has already lived out this verse. I'm starting to have my mind awoken and I'm starting to read the gospels and the scriptures in this series from a way I never have before. I'm asking myself, Lord, show me the resilience of Jesus. How many times did he get spat at in a conversation? How many times did he get torn down politically? How many times did those that he loved let him down and disappoint him? How many times did he face trials and hardships and setbacks? And that's before he even got to the cross. And yet he kept pushing through. And if ever there was one that sprung back to his shape of boldness and love, it was Jesus. I can't think of a more resilient person in history. So here's the warning label. If you're going to, here's the warning label with the person of Christianity. Please, 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 don't ever use Jesus Christ as an inspiration. Because on one hand, if you use him as an inspiration, he'll crush you no one can ever live up to that if you don't understand the underlying dynamic but don't just use him as an inspiration you see a person that uses jesus as an inspiration not as their lord you know it's a bit like this it's like the difference between well a person who's who's only using jesus as their inspiration is a bit like a person who's watching the biggest loser on their couch whilst they're eating a packet of chips <sighs> i mean the, it's inspiring It's enthralling to watch, but it's not transforming. You can't use him as an inspiration. You need to use him as one of those people that comes into your life and says, Son, daughter, cancer, loneliness, separation, rejection. I've been there before. I've been through that. I know how to get you through that. Please, please, don't, don't use Jesus as an inspiration. He is an inspiration at least, but he is so much more. And so the, in some respects, you know what that is? That's not, that's not bad news. That's not good news. That's great news. <laughs> Sorry, three-point sermon. <laughs> Couldn't help myself. <laughs> that's the great news. You don't have to do resilience alone when you're a Christian. Well, as we finish up this morning... Many of you, including my brother and sister this morning, you're not you're not in the if of trials and hardship, you're in the when. And you're facing trials of many kinds. And so the question is for for those of us here that are going through that, do you have a reason for resilience? Do you have a reason? Are you, are you going to run or will your heart, your heart get bitter or heart harder? Here's how you start. Do you see the indiscriminate inevitability of trials and hardship? If you're a Christian, it doesn't give you some immuni- survivor-style immunity idol to hardship. It's coming. And when we understand that, then it won't surprise us. We won't be unhappy about being unhappy. The second thing is, are you climbing out of the river that is our secular culture? Are you still floating in that stream of saying, this is it, happiness is now? Is the disillusion of your happiness dissolving you? You've got to climb out of that culture. The third one is, are you considering the possibility that the trials and the hardships of your life are coming and doing something, not just to you, but in you? They're changing you, they're transforming you. That's a great mystery that we've got here in Christianity because right off the beaten path, it's it's a considerably more nuanced approach to hardship and resilience. You can download 50 different articles from Harvard and psychologists about how you build resilience. It's all there for you this week. But we're going to take you into something that is wonderfully deeper and I believe wonderfully more powerful. It's summed up in the fascinating encounter in, in the book, The Velveteen Rabbit... It's a children's book about a little velveteen rabbit that wanted to become a real toy. And yet his owner, the child, was obsessed with all the new toys and forgetting about him. So he has a fascinating conversation with the wise skin horse, one of the older, old-style toys. And this is how their conversation went. The velveteen rabbit asked, how do I become real? How How do you make me real? "'Real isn't how you, ma- how you are made,' said the skin horse. "'It's a thing that happens to you. "'When a child loves you for a long, long time, "'not just to play with, but really loves you, "'then you become real. "'Does it hurt?' asked the rabbit. "'Sometimes,' said the skin horse. "'But well, when you're real, you don't mind being hurt. "'That's why it doesn't happen often to people "'who break easily or have sharp edges.' or who are carefully kept. Generally, by the time you're real, most of your hair has been loved off, and your eyes drop out, and you get loose in the joints and very shabby. But these things don't matter at all, because once you are real, you can't be ugly, except to those who don't understand. Listen up, Velveteen Rabbits. Um, Trials and hardship can kill you. They could sting you. They can hurt you. They can make you more humanized. They can make you more one dimensional. They can make you a bad person. They can make you a bitter person. But without trials and hardship, you can't become real. You can't become deep. You can't become insightful. You can't become wise. And you sure as heck can't have resilience. Let's pray.